But anyway, so Coach Isabel Valle, right away, uh, she gave me a lot of exercise um, to reflect about my values, what do we care about. And one of the questions which I encourage everyone to ask um, yourself, especially if you're trying to consider entrepreneurship, is if you have $100 million today, how would you spend it? Hey listeners, this is Alex, your host of EOA Entrepreneurs of Asia. After more than a decade of venture building, bootstrapping, scaling, and now investing in Southeast Asia, I sit down with founders, investors, and entrepreneurs who share their hard-earned lessons and stories for the benefit of the Asia ecosystem and beyond. Today's episode is part two of Natapak's journey. Previously in part one, we got to know about Natapak and what the Bangkok experience is like, along with Natapak's formative years that set them up to launching ventures in the Philippines, Thailand, and Indonesia. In part two, we get to learn about what it is actually like to work in these three countries and the major and minor differences amongst them. If you're new to building in Philippines, Indonesia, or Thailand, this is worth listening to. We also explore some of the mindset differences between the East and the West. And lastly, Natapak shares some wisdom that is useful for all entrepreneurs, whether they are early on their journey or already seasoned entrepreneurs. The $100 million question. This question has led Natapak to founding his current startup, Trash Lucky. If you're ready to learn, let's dive in and listen. And then you started in Thailand and then you ended up moving to Indonesia for what, close to three, three, four years, right? I think it was two and a half years, something like that. Two and a half years. Uh, what were some of the differences that you noticed then between the Thai market in, this, you know, in the startup ecosystem versus the Indonesia startup scene? I don't even know where to start. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, if we talk about the market first, I feel like... Yeah. Um, uh, people in Indonesia were actually more willing to to try uh, new services and and from startups. Yeah, interesting, you know, like okay. uh, than than Thailand, because uh, like I I feel like in Thailand um, people are pretty uh, complacent with the routine, right? So like mm. even if you come in and you say, hey, so this is better. But if they have to like think about making a switch and like um, it is switch is gonna cost them just even you know like a small small pain or work, yeah. they're probably not gonna do it. Interesting. Um, you know, but like for I I felt like for Indonesia, um, it was easier. And and then and this is just to give you some context. This is like the B two B. Okay. So B two B. Okay, B two B. Oh, B2B. interesting. Okay. Not B two C. Yeah. And okay. people were. People in Indonesia speaks actually speaks more English than Thai. Ah, interesting. Um, so for me as a foreigner, it was uh, much easier to to have meetings with like a logistic manager, warehouse manager in English. Um, yeah. But if I were to reflect back in Thailand, it's probably very very difficult. You know, like mm-hmm. um, I don't think uh, warehouse manager, logistic manager in Thailand would be able to hold like meeting in English. So would, would you say that it's easier to do business in Indonesia or Thailand? And we're, we're talking about starting a business, uh, getting electricity, um, registering property, getting credit, getting trade, enforcing contracts, this kind of stuff, which is like on the ease to do uh, business index uh, rankings, right? That's what they kind of consider. Uh, what, what do you think? Which one's easier? Thailand, Thailand is definitely easier. Just to give a little background, um, I I wasn't really involved in the process of setting up the company in Indonesia, so okay. my my job at delivery was pretty much 
uh, like after Thailand was pretty much like to scale up the market uh, after Tom has mm. has started it. Tom and I w- w- uh, were both in Thailand, um, and I was uh, he- building and heading delivery. Now, uh, while he was still very involved in Inspire Venture and all the yeah. portfolio companies, um, and then later when when Inspire Ventures decide to make a full switch to like the venture builder, um, Tom essentially like switch um, uh, his time from you know uh, Inspire Ventures like VC to yeah. heading delivery itself. His job then was to launch new market. So while I was still in Thailand, he then would move to Indonesia to get everything mm. launched, right? All the legal, all the structure, yeah. all the paperwork, uh, and and get off the ground running. And then once you know it's up to a certain point, then I came in and then uh, built on that. As far as setting up companies go in in Indonesia, I can only tell you from like uh, you know secondhand like stories. But I know that, you yeah. know, for example, like foreigners can't like um, uh, set up the companies on their own there. You need like nominees kind of thing, even though it's kind yeah. of illegal. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, like you need to have like a, uh, a someone that you trust, right? That, um, yeah. and, and if you were kind of like on your own, then that's going to be, don't have any connection and that's going to be very difficult too. So definitely yeah. Thailand is uh, easier. It's definitely easier to open up this Indonesia. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way probably in Vietnam is very similar to Indonesia that, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward process to set up, but if you attract enough of a certain attention, you need the right connection to make sure you know how to navigate it, or it does get uh, interesting, <laughs> I would say, you know, it gets a little bit more complicated for your business. Um, but it, it's not to say like, you know, right, everything, once you're set up, the running itself is pretty straightforward. And I don't know. Maybe maybe that seems to be true across the board, uh, unless we're, you know, for example, Malaysia, Singapore, and maybe, probably Thailand. I guess if you know, just a pure setup setup is probably very easy for for a foreigner. I guess, right? I haven't set up in Malaysia uh, or Singapore, yeah. so I can't speak to. Yeah, I mean, I, I will. I I've done both. Uh, actually, in all those markets, I've probably started companies, and it's it's definitely very easy. Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Vietnam was easy only because we had the right person. When we went, you know, when we first launched Rocket Vietnam, uh, you know, it was Oliver Samware, uh, you know, this meeting. We some he somehow found these two lawyers, and uh, it was just down to everyone in the room pointing which guy they liked, and you know, we just happened to pick the right American Vietnamese guy, uh, which ended up working really well because very competent lawyer, and he knew, he knew the right people and the authorities, and um, so it's it's much easier. Which is, you know, if you pick that wrong person, it could be very messy, I think, uh, but that's not really an issue in the other countries that I've worked in. So. Um, for for the Thai tech scene, then I, I heard that talent now is all getting sucked up into crypto. Is that true? Probably. It, I think that's a. I think that's more like a global trend, not just um, not just like a local trend. Well, do do you think the Thai? I, I feel like it's like you said. Um, switching costs are somewhat higher. You're saying for a B two B sense, but maybe also in the B two C sense, right? Because we saw Gojek exiting the market, selling it to Air Asia. Um, it seems that Line was very hard to displace, you know, the Line app, which, you know, had really big moat for other people to try to come in and, and chip away at it, but it was very hard. Uh, Lala Move kind of just built off of it, right? So they kind of just extend the ecosystem. Um, it seems that, you know, the, 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 would you say that the Thai tech ecosystem is unique and um, that it has 
you know, a kind of, kind of different flavor than what you saw in other countries that you worked from Indonesia or other parts in the region? I definitely think while it has a lot of similarities, it's also have like, you know, its own like uniqueness. I think in the contrast, yeah. like in uh, the East's contrast in the three markets that I've been in, um, Thailand, Indonesia, and Philippines. So I was in Philippines for yeah. almost half a year, I think, uh, before I left okay. the wow. Philippines to me was like the easiest market um, uh, to grow uh, because their their existing options are just so not good. It's just like so horrible, <laughs> like their traditional like um, you know options. So as long as you come in and you don't suck, you will grow. As long as you come oh, in and give good service, um, yeah. you will grow. Like because yeah. you know like. Um, even though there's like a, a a big dominant player traditional there, um, uh, the market is fragmented, and you know the service quality, the service level is is much lower. Um, so you know, like it ended up being like a, a the easiest market to launch versus Thailand. You know, like mm. um, I think people value that relationship too. You know, like oh, you know, yeah. like I've been doing this business with mm. like this uh, people for so long. I don't have yeah. that much like reason to switch. Like I like this, I like this current <laughs> business partner. So yeah. I like, yeah, I like this current sales guy. You know, like yeah, why, why change? With with really bad talent, that's a really hard problem to displace and fix. I guess so. That's that's an interesting point. I, I think that would that would be one one comment that I okay. that I saw. So for the last question on this section, then. Um, what are some, I mean, hopefully don't ruffle too many feathers, but what are some stereotypes do you think that hold true for Thailand or maybe that are false that, that people, um, you know, keep thinking about or mentioning? I think the stereotype, if you talk about stereotypes, it's probably pretty common around um, like Southeast Asia versus kind of like uh, the, the Western culture, right? Like yeah. um, in the workforce, you'll you kind of have to um, get people to express their opinions and voice their concerns. Like um, bad news that will travel up, right? And like, yeah. and even like opinions don't even uh, get a really brainstorm all that much in in the meeting room. So, so what I'm saying is like, uh, compare comparing Western culture to East uh, Southeast Asia. Um, it's, it definitely takes a uh, manager to drive the meeting and get opinions uh, out of, uh, out of the, your staff, right? I think the only exception is, is uh, well, I don't know if it's only, but like one exception is the Philippines. Uh, I think the Philippines are kind of been room with the BPO's industry and kind of the U.S. style, like kind of cult work culture. So I think they, they're kind of more vocal in in meetings uh, and you know like if you're used to that style of wanting to get um, opinions of uh, key people or you know like uh, your teams before you make the decision um, working in Southeast Asia uh, it's it just requires a little bit more effort in that aspect that's a really fascinating point because you had quite a long experience working in the US. So maybe you're better qualified to say, but my, my opinion on what you're saying is that it's more of a people problem, not a cultural or regional problem where, you know, especially in early stage where the founder has to kind of 
or the leader has to lead the meeting and really force opinions out of people because I've, I've run into that problem many times. And I kind of thought it was more around uh, you know, culture, but maybe I'm wrong because uh, the, the people who've really spoken up in meetings that I've run uh, were kind of exposed to Western culture. They either studied there or, you know, they were kind of raised in that kind of way. So maybe maybe there's something for me to think more about. And it, it is it is beyond just a people problem because I, I thought in U.S., like I always think, you know, it's an Asian problem, but I thought maybe in U.S. it would literally be the same way. So I don't know. What was your experience in U.S.? Was it was this really something that like in the U.S. you had no problem? Everyone's just contributing to meetings or do you think there's more of this personal element? Well, I, I think, you know, um, in a meeting room anywhere around the world, you you obviously have like people who are less vocal and yeah. uh, people who are more, more vocal, yeah. right? But True. I feel like in Southeast Asia, I, I run into many occasions where nobody's vocal, right? <laughs> so it's like, okay, what do you guys think? And it's silent, yeah. right? Um, yeah. I think, of course, like, you know, like uh, everywhere around the globe, um, people is always afraid to be the first one to speak up. Um, okay, so, you yeah. know, you have okay. that a little bit of pause, right, of silence yeah. before someone yeah. someone uh, speaks up. But I think at least in the Western culture, um, uh, if nobody speaks up, someone will have that urge and say, oh, you know what? I have an opinion. Let me be supportive of... Uh, um, mm. someone who asks a question, right? So yeah. we don't sit in like this awkward silence, you know, um, versus yeah. uh, versus what I found in Southeast Asia, there's more instances of we just go in silence and then, you know, uh, the the team leader will have to be like, okay, um, asking again, does anyone have opinion? It'll be silence again. And you just kind of like, okay, I have an opinion. <laughs> you know, you have to like yeah. say your opinion yeah. Uh, first right um and then yeah, someone yeah, yeah. then roommate like oh, oh yeah yeah uh okay not around and then i agree you know so yeah. you'll kind of have to um you kind of have to drive and give example of you know uh, your opinion as well um but you know like there's good and bad uh, in that one right because sometimes then you wonder like well what if what if I haven't shared my opinion first? Would they have agreed with yeah. that, or Correct. would they have thought something else? Right. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think it's due to institutionalized spoon feeding, like this whole idea of just you know raw raw memorization, take tests, you know, pump and dump, and they don't really focus on the critical thinking aspect uh, growing up in this in the schooling system? Because I'm not saying they don't people can't do critical thinking here. That's obviously not true, but. It's whether whether or not you know it, you want to voice it up, or are you waiting for a superior to give you instructions? Do you think that's like an institutionalized problem in the culture? Yeah, I think it's definitely um, a culture thing because yeah. um, remember, like I I I grew up here and yeah, correct. Uh, I yeah. went I went to school here up until um, uh, seventh grade. Sorry, uh, yeah. Thai school until sixth grade, international school one year before I went to the U.S. And in Thai mm. school, you literally, even though it was like one of the best uh, private school in Thailand, uh, but the culture is still there where if you ask questions, uh, you may get punished because hmm. uh, when you ask questions, then teacher assume that you're not paying attention and not paying yeah. attention is wrong. If you had paid attention, then you would have understand. 
yeah. you would have understood and you, and you know you wouldn't ask questions right so yeah. sometimes it even sometimes teacher would even take it uh, a step further where okay why did you ask question you didn't pay attention come up here and then they they um they spank you right in front of class with a stick oh you know? wow hardcore <laughs> yeah so so it's like well the culture is like you actually get punished to ask questions right yeah. um you're just supposed to sit in silence and listen and memorize and take notes that's all you're supposed yeah. to do right if you question yeah. even if you understood but you saw like a different alternatives you're not allowed or you're not encouraged to debate right so that was definitely one of the things that I had to get used to when I went to high school in the U.S. Because, like, mm. you know, like in Western education system, you're encouraged to like discuss, you're encouraged to voice your yeah. opinion, and I was definitely yeah. like one of the most silent you know, like student in class because a I had the language barrier, and mm. and b I had the culture barrier. I'm not used to like voicing yeah. my opinion mm. i think that you know my opinion is not important because i never yeah. voiced my opinion like uh in thai school like this is weird yeah. to me you know that that makes me really think hard about my own actions behavior living here in the past 10 years i i think no matter wherever i went i probably was just that loud annoying american who just kept voicing my opinion especially in the context of work you know like building ventures and this kind of thing uh, which i mean i think is important at that level you need to kind of have that otherwise you really don't move anywhere and a, a lot of my leadership um initiatives have to be around the you know mentoring critical thought asking why getting people to you know go beyond what they're usually comfortable with so you know that that's a pretty fresh perspective and i, I think that's a very good point that you know it's it's i i just don't i don't know that context but when you tell it to me it, a lot of things make more sense all of a sudden in my past history and it's still like this today like yeah yeah true so unless it's a big reform then yeah, you know like yeah. people people will be used to this like it's only it's only those who grown up and break the habit and then you know they yeah. they become more you know like vocal and comfortable it's yeah. not like all ties are like this of course of course of course, of course. Okay. we're not like, doing a mass generalization yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Okay, so I, I want to move to the last section about. I think your journey transitioning from delivery into what you're doing now, Trash Lucky, is quite interesting because you kind of took a year off, right? Actually, yeah, maybe a, almost a year. Yeah. You're right. You had long corporate experience uh, being an engineer. Then you kind of started running a family business, and then uh, after that, you did your first startup, Easy Taxi. Then you do your second startup, and you scale it successfully across you know a few countries because delivery is still running today and still fighting in the logistics space. Um, you know, so that's kind of where you're at your journey. So you probably wanted to, what were your thoughts? Like you wanted to take pause to figure out what to do. Um, I remember we we had met in Bali that time with, with all the old, old Easy Taxi gang. And you were just talking about thinking about starting something in recycling because of your experience in surfing, right? Um, so what will happen during that one year? What was that journey like? And what kind of thought, what kind of exercise did you do to figure out, you know, I want to do Trash Lucky? So when I joined Delivery, my goal was to build it from uh, zero, to so build from scratch, yeah. and get it to Series A, uh, and then leave to do my own startups. Okay. Um, so that's what I did. Like once, uh, although it, you know, like I, I told myself that it would take two years um, to get there. Yeah. Uh, in reality, it took three years. Yeah. Um, but you know, in reality, it always takes longer. Than of course. So, so after having raised Series A, I I told myself that I, you know, like um, 
uh, reach my goal. Uh, so um, I should think about what, uh, what venture uh, I would want to build of my own. Yeah. Uh, and being in startups, like it's really firefighting every day. Yeah. So you don't really have time to reflect and think about what is important to you, what kind of business you want to build. Like what are you what are you into? What what are you put on earth to do? What is your purpose? Yeah. You don't have time to reflect because in the next day you are worrying about, you know, a key client and then, you know, like um you gotta go pitch to the next potential client. Um and then, you know, your fulfillment uh drop because it rained, you know, like all these things, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm never gonna find my new venture if i tell myself that i can moonlight and think about the next idea while i'm at a startup like that's just dreaming that's just a dream so um if i really want to do my own startups i need to take a break i need to stop everything and focus on soul searching almost right like yeah. finding the calling um so it wasn't an easy decision because, you know, like I've always having like one job after the other, uh, yeah. knowing exactly like if I quit this job, what is my next uh, job, right? Yeah. Um, but then at that moment, it was like, if I quit this job and I don't find what I want to do, will I be like jobless forever? Like, I don't want to be jobless forever, right? So it, yeah. it was, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Like, decision to make but yeah eventually eventually i came to realize the point that i just said it's like okay if i don't quit now i would definitely be at delivery for the next three years like mm -hmm. another three years you know yeah correct so i just like uh i just balls up and just say i just have to quit and mm -hmm. think that uh i will find something that i want to do if i yeah. don't give myself time i will never find that path yeah um so so yeah so so i work until the very last day uh, before i need to jump on the plane to my um NCAA reunion in france <laughs> nice. um, i literally left work and then went to the airport <laughs> <laughs> bye <laughs> startup style yeah. Uh, and and yeah like it was a nice break uh, of course like you you were still like in shock where like, oh, wait, I don't have a job to go to. I don't need to reply emails while I'm, yeah. in, while I'm on vacation. Yeah. You know, like that's weird. Like yeah. I'm always used to replying emails while I'm on vacation, replying yeah. WhatsApp, whatever. And then, you know, I just kind of uh, went traveling um, with my girlfriend in, in Europe for a bit. And then uh, came back to Thailand. And of course, like I... I I love surfing, so I wanted to go live in Bali for a couple of months mm -hmm. and basically just do some self-reflection, you know, like, uh, it's like a soul searching trip. Um, yeah. just some time to decompress basically. Yeah. When I was about to go to Bali, a, um, a volcano there has just erupted. So all my flight got canceled and this was like 2018, I think. And then my friend, my insight friend, who she's very smart, one of the smartest person I, I've met, um, had worked with a actually a leadership coach. And of course, like for me, I uh, I always thought that leadership coach is something stupid. That's like bullshit. Doesn't do anything. 
but having like a person that I respected uh, and consider as very smart um, recommended something that really changed my perspective as well. It's like, oh, well, if Stephanie really uh, think highly of what the leadership coach could help her, maybe maybe it's a good time to like for me to engage this leadership coach as well. And um, and, you know, like I, I met her. And uh, we talk about like what she can help me with. And I think one of the benefits of ha- uh, um, hiring her was she kept me on track, right? Like mm. um, it wasn't like about me just kind of going to Bali and have like endless surfing time yeah. and not like uh, concentrate on self-reflection at all. But Lots having work. her there, exactly. She like yeah. give me assignments of Self self-reflection work. Yeah. and like, yeah, put me on schedule. Yeah. So I'm confident that uh, that I will I will actually spend time and work on those things and not just go surfing all day and not thinking about anything. Yeah, correct. And then three years later, I'm like a surf bum in Bali. Yeah. Um, a very possible so, outcome. Yeah, exactly. In, in Bali, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a, a very, very uh, good decision as well. And, and of course, by luck, if the if the volcano hadn't happened and I didn't, it didn't give time for me to see my friend, um, then maybe that, that coach wouldn't come up. Yeah. But anyway, so coach Isabel Valle, by the way, uh, she gave me a lot of exercise um, to reflect about my values, what do we care about? And one of the questions which I encourage everyone to ask um, yourself, especially if you're trying to consider entrepreneurship, is if you have $100 million today, how would you spend it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and of course, like, you know, you may think that, well, uh, you'll probably think that, well, I probably wouldn't spend $100 million on one thing. I would probably like, you know, uh, divide it up into like investment. I would divide up, maybe give some to parents, maybe buy a house, whatever, right? Unless you're, unless you're um, Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but but if you if you had like a bunch of ideas and like this uh entrepreneurship dream you'll prob one of the things you'll probably would be thinking is like what problem can this money solve yeah right correct and and that's definitely uh um where my head uh went and and then i you know spending a lot of time in the ocean even before that Bali trip, you see a lot of plastic waste in the ocean. Right? Yeah. You're basically swimming in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, it's really uh, painful to see that because when you, when you go to Indonesia and you go to a small island uh, in Indonesia, um, for example, like Sumba, uh, an island of, I think, 700 50,000 people, but it's pretty big, right? Um, yeah, it's like a city. You know, I'll be, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a decent sized island yeah. with not that, you know, not that many people on it, less than a million, yeah. but literally like you drive, we drove along the coast to, to travel and literally like all along the road, you see plastic trash everywhere. Even where there's nobody there, you know, so yeah. you're just like, oh my god, we are literally like 
trashing the earth uh, and the mm-hmm. oceans, like uh, with all these this waste. So this problem about the plastic waste has always been in the back of my mind. So when I had to reflect about how would I use one hundred million dollar today, that problem or addressing the ocean plastic pollution definitely uh, was one of the uh, key things, key idea that came back to me. You know, like, yeah. um, and it wasn't it wasn't trash lucky then. Like, I I didn't have like the, it's never like that, right? Like the yeah. ideas doesn't just comes up with a snap finger. It took months to like come up with that, right? Like at first, I was thinking, uh, how do I how do I come up with a um, marine degradable plastic? Yeah. So you know, like uh, all these, all these packaging um, uh, ends up, uh, a lot of time ends up in the waterways um, when it's not discarded properly, and then the waterways of course lead to the ocean. Um, so what if you can come up with a packaging that can degrade by itself in the ocean, in the in the water, and you know, maybe that solves the problem. Yeah. I spent months like researching about material science, you know, like packaging. Engineer um, background. Yeah. Chemical, chemical engineering. <laughs> of course, like it was like very, very dull and boring research. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it did that, but it did open up like, you know, many connections as yeah. well. Right. And organizations that are also working to address this problem. Mm-hmm. So then, then you, then when, when you make that kind of progress through your research, then you think, okay, I'm not that crazy. You know, like yeah. I, there are other people who are solving this problem as well. I just haven't, I just didn't know about them. I didn't know they exist, but yeah, those correct. people exist. And there's like a big community about this. Um, I found my tribe, you know? Yeah. So then you're like, okay, maybe if this big nonprofit, uh, global nonprofit are working on this, then it's definitely a important enough problem to solve. So that's what I, that's what I started with. Um, uh, how how to come up with a marine agreeable plastic from that question, uh, $100 million, um, how would you spend it? And I try to convince many, many uh, material scientists to basically join the quest. Yeah. And they were just like, oh, you're crazy. Like, who's this <laughs> one dude calling me from Thailand, you know, and like uh, the guy from uh, Germany, <laughs> um, you know, like, hey, uh, we're gonna we're gonna go race one. And we're gonna do R and D, yeah. and then we're gonna come up with a prototype that we can launch in like two years, two three years, you know. And then we yeah. go raise more fun and do this. And um, I spent like I don't know, I think at least two three months after that initial research. When we met in Bali, was when I was still going through that uh, self reflection process, and then um, and then thinking about which path to take and like uh, finding clarity. Right, like, yeah. Um, how to align my my head, my heart, and my gut, right? Like, yeah. uh, if you can align those three brain, then you find that clarity. So, yeah. But it takes time. So that's what Bali was all about. That was what working with my coach is all about. And when I when we met in Bali, I was still going through that process, but I was almost at the very end, right? Like I was already like very certain that's probably the the problem that I want to solve. Yeah. Um, so after that, uh, after I left Bali, uh, after I found that clarity, I left Bali, contact those uh, scientists, um, and then they thought I was crazy. 
So then I went back to drawing board, like, okay, <laughs> I just spent two, three months, you know, like pitching to this idea and people thought I'm crazy because I'm not like a big conglomerate, like yeah. Dow Chemical, you know, like um, who's going to solve this problem, right? No. Um, so I was like, okay, what do I know? And uh, what impact can I start today? What yeah. is the supply chains like? Um, so that marine degradable plastic was starting at the beginning of the supply chain, changing the material, changing the packaging, changing the chemical comp compounds, the structure, yeah. right? Um, but then what happens, uh, what happens in the supply chain after that? Uh, consumer use the packaging, um, consumer discarded. Um, if they discard it properly, then it goes to recycling. If they don't discard properly, then it goes into the environment mostly, yep. right? So I'm like, oh, well, maybe, maybe I can work at the back end. Uh, mm. What about stopping people from, from throwing um, all these recyclables away in, yeah. in the environment and in the landfill? And then I start research more. And one day I came across uh, city Surabaya that allows people to, um, to exchange plastic bottles for a bus fare. And I thought yeah. that's, wow, that's a very creative idea of getting people to recycle. This is in Indonesia, but right? The limit, yeah, exactly. But the limitation is that you need public transportation for that model to work. Uh, if you don't have public transportation, then what, people are just not going to recycle? What happens <laughs> in like small rural suburbs yeah, when where there's no like public bus? Yeah. So I was like, well, maybe we can turn recyclable trash into something else. So then I just kept thinking and one day it just clicked. It was right before Christmas, I remember. Um, and uh, it just clicked that like, oh my God, Thai people love lottery. Like yeah. two out of seven of 20 million Thais spend 8.3 billion US dollar a year on lottery. Wow. So if we can turn this recyclable waste into uh, lottery tickets, maybe people will change the perception um, mm. of the value of this material because all of a sudden this piece, this one piece of plastic may make them a millionaire. Yeah. Right. So then I was like, wow, this is a, this is a very powerful idea. So then I start like asking around, bouncing idea of people and everyone like, wow, that's the, yeah, that's, that's very creative. I went to, I went to DTAC Accelerate Info Session just by chance, having like built companies before I didn't think I would need to go to Accelerator, right? Yeah. Um, but I was like, well, I mean, I'm not working free. Why don't I just go there just to yeah. hear, hear what they do? Um, and then just by luck, I met an ex-colleague at Easy Taxi after not having talked to him for five years. Small world. And yeah. And then we got to catch up and he was like, oh my God, like I want to do something in waste management as well. So I think that was April, 2019. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, why don't we, why don't we set up a meeting next week? And then that's it. And then we basically say, okay, let's work together. And then we went to uh, a month later, we went to pitch at DTAC Accelerator. We end up taking the first place of the practice pitching round. Yeah. which earns you like a fast track to the final pitching day. Mm. Um, and then we got in the program and then, and then we we're like, okay, I guess we now have to found a <laughs> former company. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So basically like along the way, there's like a validation, right? Like yeah. when I sell this idea, what do people think about this idea? 
we did interviews of people, we did interview of um, uh, the waste collector, uh, basically like do all the research, right? Like yeah. um, talk to as many people as uh, we can. And that DTAC Australia incubator really, really um, got us to commit as well because they they uh, would invest, right? Yeah, correct. Um, and, and help us as a registered company as well. So, you know, and, and the tax rate at the time was like the uh, number one accelerator in Thailand. So of course it would give us uh, credibility to yeah. go do more things afterward. Um, so we're like, well, you know, this is enough validation uh, on the money side as well. So we need to, to, to do this now. And that's, yeah. that's basically what we did. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty amazing story from, you know, I love how you describe it how you go on a journey, how you see clarity. Like one of the biggest things I'm harping on these days on the podcast is um, there's, there's so much noise in the market where people are just chasing capital, wanting to get money, right? They just, you know, they're just copying. It's kind of a function of where we are in, in the business cycle with a lot of money slushing around and a lot of people just coming in for the wrong reasons. But um, and I love that $100 million question. I've actually used that framework that you gave me, you know, asking my friends. And, you know, it, it changed a lot of their perspective. So it's a very powerful compass and tool to use. And just like how you figured out Trash Lucky, right? How you figured out how you want to, you know, basically remove all the mar marine debris in the ocean. Um, and it was very organic, right? You, you were seeking clarity. You did the homework. You talked to people. You got validation talking to scientists who start from the beginning of supply chain, I think scientists are very risk averse and it's not an easy path, which I, I still think there's some ideas that you could pursue in that area, but it's like at that point in time, you know, it's, it's, it's going to take more effort. So high risk, high reward. Right. So, but you know, so you kind of went further down supply chain and you know, you organically grew through this idea, through experience and actually trying and doing. And, and I think a lot of people kind of don't go through this journey, which, which I think I appreciate you telling the story and it hopefully gives people context of how startups are born. And, um, you know, there's no one right way to do it. It's you know, like how the, the framework we talked earlier before, how Rocket Internet just throws ideas on the wall or you know, there's venture builder ideas um, or something like this. I, I think this is something that's very meaningful. And I guess for you, uh, you, you wouldn't mind working on this for the rest of your life then, right? Yeah. If I can stop these materials from going into the ocean, right? I, I wouldn't change anything. I, I, I actually haven't been paid to do this. <laughs> Yeah, for two two so, years now, right? But it still keeps me. Yeah, luckily, like I exit my share from delivery, right? So I have that savings, and of course, from AMD as well, to fund the company for my lifestyle now. At this moment, um, I would do Trash Lucky as long as it's moving us to closer to that vision of oceans without plastic pollution. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think we're going to have to do a whole separate podcast specifically on Trash Lucky and maybe doing a jam session. Uh, but, you know, I, I feel like I, I took too much of your time already. So I'll just move to the last two questions then. Um, but what, what, is ex what is your expectation for your life going forward and for the next 10, 20 years? Because very similar to the university question, right? You're, you were a young guy back in university. You had a very different view of what was going to happen, right? And you probably didn't expect you'd be building a, a recycling company now. Uh, what, what do you think about that question now? Um, I, I can only answer maybe like 10 years because sure. maybe even five years, my thought would change and maybe sure. I don't want to do traps like anymore. Who knows? Anything yeah. can happen, but yeah. you know, it doesn't seem like so at a time, by the way. Yeah. Um, but in 10 years, like what I want to do is spend the next, you know, like 10 years growing trash lucky across the region. If you look Southeast Asia, uh, many of the countries, uh, in the top 10. 
uh, ocean polluting countries. Um, yeah. China is number one, Indonesia is number two. Uh, number three, um, I think, is uh, either Philippines or Sri Lanka. Number five and six is like, uh, I think, Vietnam and Thailand, something like that. Yeah. So, um, so all those, you know, like, uh, is Southeast Asia. And, and South, uh, Southeast Asians are like, you know, like, yeah, Southeast Asians in general, they, they, they all like lucky draw. They all like lottery. <laughs> they um, do. They do. So, yeah, so I, I feel like, you know, if I can make Thailand work, um, there's no reason why I cannot make um, it work in other countries in Southeast Asia, especially mm. given like, the experience and connection that I've had uh, working in those uh, other countries, right? Yeah. Um, right now, it's just in the short term, the next year, it's just surviving through COVID because yeah. Yeah, it's been COVID, COVID actually makes it very difficult for us to like, grow and validate models because people just deprioritize any activities. And of course, like trash becomes a very, very low priority, right? Yeah. People are worrying more about like health, safety, Surviving. vaccine, you know, so exactly. So it's make, it makes it very difficult for us. But during the past two years, we were still able to launch new segments. So how do we test as many market segments as possible so that we learn? Um, so we've been able to do that. We've been able to secure government grants to grow and, you know, to build technology. So, um, you know, albeit like a slow progress, but uh, because of COVID, but we feel that we will survive through COVID um, and come out stronger, you know, like uh, next year when, when things yeah. get back to more uh, like a normal pace. And I'm sure once that happens, we will grow very nicely. So then, you know, we can... Um, start expanding uh, bigger in Bangkok, in Thailand, and across Southeast Asia over the next 10 years. And, and essentially, do you have a metric that you're looking for? For example, X percentage of trash recycled uh, specifically from the ocean or reducing X percentage from the ocean for you to feel you've hit a certain scale and size where then you can then turn on monetization and it makes sense? I have a similar metric, okay. um, not that exact one. Yep. But, uh, you know, like in the next um, two, three years, we want like 200,000 um, people in in Bangkok to be recycling with trash lucky. Mm. Uh, okay. So, yeah, it, it would take a lot of work. Um, it's yep. not like a, it's not like, um, you know, like download TikTok and upload <laughs> your video on your mobile phone. It actually requires like, us educating people to take actions of separating uh, waste, right? You, you say that, but maybe uh, content marketing with influencers doing recycling might actually be the answer. It, it seems to be something that might work well in Southeast Asia. I don't know. That's true. Yeah, maybe yeah. we should. Maybe we should get on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should. Uh, okay. For my, my last question, then, is what what is the most important thing you've learned on your entrepreneurial journey so far? I guess probably like a. Um, I, I think it goes back to the topic that we talked earlier as well about um, the journey to discovering Trash Ducky is having that clarity, right? Because entrepreneurship is, is difficult, man. When things go south, like if you don't, if you're not into it, you're not like yeah. care about it enough, you'll probably just quit and go like find a full-time job. When COVID happens and all the schools that we uh, had lined up for launching recycling programs just basically say, oh, we can't do it anymore because our school will close. 
<laughs> you know, if you're not serious yeah. about this problem enough, you'll probably say, okay, um, COVID happens, let's, let's pack our bags and go get full-time yeah. jobs. But if you have that clarity, if, you, if you're aligned, if you see uh, the purpose, if you know that this is the reason that you're put on earth, at least for now, or for the next five years, seven years, 10 years, whatever, um, you uh, will probably keep on going and try to like problem solve and find creative ways to make progress. You know, I'm not saying find clarity and just keep on uh, banging your head against the wall. That's not what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Find clarity, but once you have that, then you would be able to set goals and uh, small milestones and um, even even when you hit your roadblock, you'll try to be creative to go around that road, roadblock uh, to make progress. And that progress will 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 encourage you to to uh, tackle the next problem and build more progress. So yeah, that's that would be the key thing. Yeah. So having that clarity, tying it to an important mission, and not giving up um, is a perfect place to end. Uh, so thank you for sharing your story, your journeys, and your lessons. Much appreciated. Hey listeners, I hope you enjoyed listening to part two of Natapak's journey. If you missed part one, feel free to check it out to give you better context. If you enjoyed the content or learned something new, please share it with your friends or family or those who could benefit. And also give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. So what did we learn today? I really, really loved the $100 million question that Natapak asks. If you had $100 million today, right now, what problem would you be solving? Or would you even be solving a problem at all? I also recently heard another excellent reframing of this type of question. When you feel stuck, how would you feel about your choice or your decision one year from now? How about three years from now? What about five or 10 years from now? These are all variations of mental models and tools you could use to help get clarity that Natapak talks about. I completely agree with Natapak that more often than not, many people who are on the entrepreneurial journey get stuck in the weeds and dive into the abyss before having any clarity at all. Even if the clarity is wrong, doing some homework is better than going in blindly. More often than not, you will toil away in circles if you don't do the homework. I hope you got some clarity today. See you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.